Welcome, I'm Abigail Pogrubin, and this is JBS's regular special, Defending Israel with David Harris. I am honored to sit with you today, though I will say, as I'm sure you are living, um, it's getting harder, not easier. Um, I wanna just start from taking your temperature on where we are. We're doing this interview November 20th, 2023. I'm seeing a drumbeat of doubt and skepticism about Israel's story, information, when it comes to promulgating this war. Can you react to what you are seeing in terms of just, it seems in the, at least American media, a constant questioning of whether what Israel says is happening is actually happening? So I think, Abby, first of all, that um, this is all quite predictable. In other words, that with each passing day, there's going to be um, greater doubt, more public calls to, to, to end this war. Uh, even a ceasefire becomes a euphemism in a way for bringing this war to an end. But I think at the same time, uh, Israel has actually done quite a good job in its information campaign. Uh, it, it's not working in a vacuum. There are a lot of people who are prepared to be skeptical of anything Israel says, but take the Al-Shifa hospital story, which has become, in a way... A touchstone. Yes, ground zero for this whole conversation. Uh, the fact of the matter is that everything Israel said has been proved true. Now, there are those who will, will not accept it any more than they would accept anything else that Israel said. Well, there's said. those who say it's not enough. It's not enough what they have presented, whether it's pictures or sending in, they've let reporters come in. There's a sense that, that this is, you, you haven't proven it. We can, we can come up with another explanation. But that's always going to be the case, Abby. But those are the same people who want us all to lose sight of how this war began. And it's important to return to how this war began. You know, it sounds to me repetitive to have to say it, um, you know, six, seven weeks later. But this war began not at Israel's initiative, this was a war launched by Hamas. How many times do we have to repeat that and shout that? This was not a war that Israel wanted or sought. This was a war launched by Hamas. And it wasn't just another terrorist attack. This was a genocidal attempt in which Hamas crossed the border and ecstatically, ecstatically sought to murder, maim, mutilate, kidnap as many people as possible. And now you have the phenomenon, which perhaps JBS viewers have not heard before, called reverse causality. Hamas begins the war, and now Hamas is whining to the world about Israel's response. It, in a way, it wants to shift the whole story from what we, Hamas, did to start this war to what Israel is now doing in response. So that's the first part. The second part is, I think that in the West, there are those who are naive, and there are no, those who perhaps are more malicious. But Hamas is a fanatical, jihadist organization. And I think there are too many people who refuse to understand what that actually means. Because most of the rest of us in the West we're, we're raised in a more moderate way. We can't understand the mother in Gaza, who having just been told 
that her son, the combatant or the militant, was killed in action, proudly points to her own womb and says, I'm bringing another martyr into the world. How many Western mothers can understand that kind of mindset that says, I celebrate my, my, my son's martyrdom, in quotation marks, and I want to bring more marches into the world for more murder, more mutilation, more kidnapping, more gang rape. So I want, David, just to make sure that viewers who are hearing you know, at least in your mind, is there a separation between that family that you're describing and the thousands that are being killed right now? Do you feel like there is an assumption that should be made that they are all combatants of some kind? Because it's very hard, as you know, for many in Western life to see the loss of life, of God's and life and God's and families. And I'm not saying that you're even saying that those people deserve to die, but there's a different mindset of whether the, there is some sense of, there's Hamas over here and there's all these innocent Gazans over here. Right, so let me try and break that down, uh, Abby, as best I can. If one, one Palestinian child, in this case in Gaza, were intentionally, premeditatedly murdered by an Israeli, I would be here with you denouncing it exactly as I would denounce the murder of an Israeli child. That's number one. Number two, I know it's been said before, but too often it falls on deaf ears. But what does even the most moral army in the world do when on the one hand it's threatened with annihilation, and that's not me speaking, that's the Hamas charter speaking, that's Hamas spokesman speaking. They say it, they repeat it. Those who don't want to believe it, do so at their own peril. And as part of their military strategy, weaponize both civilians as individuals and civilian sites. So let's say we're not talking about Israel now, we're talking about the Pentagon or we're talking about the British military or NATO headquarters in Brussels. What exactly are they supposed to do knowing that Hamas is in charge of Gaza? They're not an incidental player. They're in charge. They want the eradication of the state of Israel and they say so. They've just shown the level of barbarism on October the 7th, lest there was any doubt. And they use civilians as human shields. And they use hospitals and mosques and schools and even UN facilities um, as arms depots, command as centers. command centers, probably as hiding places for the hostages. So what exactly is Israel supposed to do? I, I mourn with anyone, any innocent civilian death, but I understand that war was unleashed by Hamas, the governing power. I also have to add, Abby, though it may not be wildly popular, uh, I grew up during the Vietnam War in the United States. I know something about protest. When a war is unpopular, I was one of those young people just marching uh, to the Pentagon, marching in the streets of New York, opposing the war in Vietnam. People will tell me Gaza is not the United States, but I'm waiting to see the, dis the dissenting voices 
beginning in Gaza, who have the courage to say, whether from within Gaza or perhaps having crossed the border, saying, this is not me. They do not represent me. Hamas. Okay? I've seen it in Iran. Okay? We saw it in spades in Iran in 2009, for example, at other times. I'm waiting to see the outcry. And by the way, Abby, even Mahmoud Abbas, who's meant to be our putative partner for peace down the road, has been chasing after Hamas, trying to ride the bandwagon that Hamas created by, by attacking Israel. So where are those voices? Okay. Tal Becker, uh, he is legal advisor of the Israeli yes. Ministry of Foreign Affairs, a veteran member of Israeli peace negotiation teams. He did an interview with Dr. Yehuda Kurtzer, co-president of the Shalom Hartman Institute, and Tal is a senior fellow there. He was addressing the accusations that Israel's response is disproportionate, and I just want you to respond to what he said. There's so much misunderstanding about proportionality. In a broad sense, proportionality is not tit for tat. Proportionality is about using that amount of force, which is necessary to neutralize the threat that you are facing. And the threat that we, Israeli, Israel, we are facing here is immense. It's not just the Hamas threat and its ongoing efforts to infiltrate and murder Israelis and the constant indiscriminate rocket fire there's the threat of Hezbollah, which is a massively sophisticated terrorist organization, and he describes other fronts. He mentions Houthis, Houthis in uh, Yemen and Iran. So he continues, the scope of the threat we are dealing with, it's 9-11 multiple times over. That's something that's relevant in understanding the proportionality of Israel's response writ large. You know most people are not listening to this conversation. And so the average, whether they are progressive or not progressive, open the newspaper and they see more bombing, more families, more of these photographs, which are devastating. Can you help the person who is struggling with whether this idea that Israel's overdoing it? I want to just give people the sort of the David Harris response to their conscience here. Abby, first of all, let's state what was painfully obvious. Israel could flatten Gaza in a day. If Israel chose to unleash all of the power at its command, if it took a page from the United States and Britain during the Second World War, it would level Gaza. End of story. And, and it hasn't. And it hasn't. And may, may I remind us, and, and Britain and the U.S. were the good guys in the Second World War. Um, the United States went to the extent of dropping two atomic bombs, not on military sites. Hiroshima and Nagasaki were not military sites per se. It was to send a message to the Japanese that the war is over or we will continue to drop these bombs and level your country. Uh, I was not born but I've seen the images of Dresden and Leipzig and Hamburg. Strangely, I lived in Munich, Germany, just a few years after the end of the Second World War. Those cities were largely destroyed. When I arrived in Munich as a child with my parents, Holocaust survivors, we were told that 90% or more of the city of Munich had been destroyed in the Second World War by Allied bombing. And I'm not even gonna talk about the non-democratic countries like Syria and the means they employed um, in order to 
level the, the enemy. Israel is trying to find a way consistent with, yes, its moral code, which ironically is its Achilles heel here, ironically. And doing so, Abby, it is sending Israeli soldiers directly into harm's way by going block to block, street to street, house to house, mosque to mosque, school to school, knowing that there are booby traps along the way, there are snipers along the way, there are all kinds of hidden explosives. This is what Israel is doing. And rather than being acknowledged, Israel is being criticized, vilified, uh, ostracized. So I think, Abby, if we want to get to the root of this, something else is going on here that's not just about objective military analysis. And what is that? I think it's inescapable at this point, and it's something I resisted for many years of my life. It's a single word. It's anti-Semitism. Uh, there's no other explanation for me that can, um, that can help us understand why, when Israel is involved, the level of scrutiny, the level of criticism, the level of skepticism, the level of doubt just goes off the charts in a way that, that applies to no other country and in a situation, Abby, which could not be, to me, morally clearer. Again, October 7th, in, in American terms, if I get this right, the American population is about 35 times Israel's population. Israel's about nine and a half. I think we're about 330, 340 million. Multiply 1,200 Israeli victims on that day by 35, you get to 42,000 Americans murdered in one day. Take the hostages, 240. Multiply them by roughly 35. Imagine today that we were grappling six weeks later with 42,000 Americans murdered, with over 7,000 Americans, and by the way, foreign nationals living in America, who have been kidnapped. And they range in age from t toddler to the elderly. How exactly would America respond? And maybe if we put that into context, then we understand that Israel has no choice, and those that are putting Israel under a microscope in a way that no other nation would be put under the microscope may be motivated by something more than just the morality that they purport to, to, um, to support. Some have been saying, and I have to say I'm a little bit persuaded, that maybe we should stop using anti-Semitism and say Jew hatred. Because it just almost feels uh, antiseptic to what we're seeing right now. I want to turn to campuses. Um, you've obviously stayed involved. I know you've been invited in to quite a few. It feels like something, you know, has spread like wildfire. And I guess I want to roll it back to how this happened. <laughs> because, you know, I was on campus, you were on campus. I, I just, I don't remember even having to be made so conscious of the fact that I was a Jew at the time. It just, you know, if I wanted to do Jewish things, I did Jewish things, but there was no sense of having to kind of apologize for my identity in the same way that I feel like there is now. And just in terms of kind of the momentum of this, what's your diagnosis? Well, first of all, I went to college long before you did. Not long. <laughs> but but I, can, I can confirm what you said. Um, I spent five years at Penn. 
And I don't think in the five years I was there, I ever had um, a concerning Jewish moment. Not one. And by the way, just speaking personally, to see that my own alma mater is now one of the universities that the federal government has announced it's investigating for anti-Semitism, to me is so shameful, so embarrassing, so concerning. But your question was not about me and my own experience no, I, in this case at Penn. But I, I think that, again, these are very uncomfortable conversations, Abby, because they break certain taboos and people would rather kind of verbally talk around them than, than through them. But we're dealing with several issues now that, that are inescapable. Jewish students, and I've been on a number of campuses um, in recent days and weeks, I've been speaking to a lot of students um, who've reached out to me, whom I've known over the years, and the themes are very similar. Um, they feel very alone. For all of the, let's call it, intergroup relations work that the Jewish community, whether on campus or off campus, has, has committed to, building relationships with other faith groups, other ethnic groups, other racial communities, the consistent response to me is, we feel very alone. And when I ask them, are there other student groups that have come out publicly in support, the, the way at Harvard, flip it, 30 or 35 groups came out very publicly, not only against Israel, but blaming Israel for October the 7th. Are there groups on, on the other side? And the answer I consistently get is no. There are individuals here, but there are, no, there are no groups that are sort of standing with the Jews. So why are the Jews sort of abandoned on campus? And why have administrations too often created this doubt about their level of support for the Jewish students? Well, um, I, I think for one thing, we have to look at foreign funding. It's not the only answer, but it's one of the answers, and I'm involved with uh, a group called ISCAP, the Institute for the Study of Global Anti-Semitism Policy. It's chaired by Natan Sharansky, a name I think everyone knows. And the group is finding literally billions of dollars with a B, Abby, that are going to American universities, including marquee universities, and we will be naming those universities. Universities that are required under federal law to report foreign gifts over $250,000 and have not. What's the purpose of that money? Well, it seems the purpose of the money is obviously to buy foreign influence, um, advance foreign influence in this country, win the hearts and minds of young people in this country, and much of it is coming from the Middle East. Qatar. And Qatar, the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, and it's a long-term game. It, and it, David, again, because I can imagine some people saying, this sounds like a conspiracy theory, and how does that money in some way trickle down to student mindsets and politicization like it, help us make the link it, it, it it's a longer story and, and and it will be coming out um i assure you reports are being written as as we speak uh they're going to be made public we're going to be seeking uh, congressional hearings we're going to be calling out specific universities uh, by name by name uh, and we will be showing um long-term planning. This is like watching grass grow. Mm. I mean, stand there and nothing changes. But over the years, I mean, Abby, go back some years. 
if anything, when I was in college and then you much later than me, you know, if anything, Jews were still seen through the kind of neo-Nazi white supremacy paradigm that we weren't fully white, we weren't fully, we were not part of the Mayflower generation. Now, the discourse has completely changed. We're the white it's oppressor. We are, we are the poster children for white evil. How did that come about? How did we become the quintessentially white evil face of America? When we had been, and Charlottesville was one of the last reminders, you know, we had been the people poisoning the white race, number one. Number two, I, I read recently that there are more than 140 people, I believe, who work in the DEI offices at the University of Michigan alone. And I'll, I'll, I'll be blunt. I, I don't think the explosion in DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion on American campuses, has necessarily come with a great deal of sympathy and understanding for Jews. No, Jews are part of the problem. Jews are, as I was told by students at UCLA some years ago, we're allegedly wealthy, uh, we're white, we're privileged, and we're powerful in the eyes of, of that world. So we're part of the problem. And when Jewish students go to, to those offices, they don't necessarily get a very sympathetic hearing, to the contrary. Number three, the demographic changes in America. Uh, when, when I went to college, as my children like to say, Dad, in the last century, you know, as, as if I'm antediluvian, um, there, were no, there were virtually no Muslim students on campus. If there were, it was the, the child of a sheikh from the Middle East. But Understand me, Abby, I'm not talking about all Muslim students, not at all, but we would be blind not to see the role of some Muslim students in leading these efforts at Harvard University, at Penn, and elsewhere. Some of them are overseas students. We saw that at MIT, where MIT was suddenly reluctant because these are full tuition paying students and they don't want to let go of them so easily. And you have, so you have this demographic change on the one hand, joined with this kind of intersectional movement on campuses over the years, fed by certain faculty, the DEI mindset and all, which essentially says um, power, is, power is a dirty word. Success is a dirty word. And, and suspect. And if you have power or if you're seen to have power or if you're seen to have success, uh, you have not achieved it honestly. You've achieved it on the backs of people who themselves are powerless, oppressed. So everything we were, we were taught to believe, Abby, about the United States and how one gets ahead and the Jewish belief that we played by the rules, Abby. I mean, we didn't come here, we didn't come here with, with lots of assets. My mother never finished high school because the Nazis never let her finish high school in France. Uh, uh, my mother went to work right away, barely speaking English when she arrived in the United States. But she believed in America, its promise. And to me, it was education, education, education. Play by the rules, David. Um, work hard, study hard, go to a good school, prove yourself. And unlike Europe and that model, um, you'll succeed. Well, we played by those rules. Now we're being told that 
um, they weren't quite as transparent, and we therefore were not quite as honest. So I want to end, just because we're running out of time. With, I'm just getting warmed up. With the march, <laughs> which a week ago, as we're sitting here, um, almost 300,000 people came to Washington. It was a very moving, entirely peaceful. The coverage the next day was hard to find. <laughs> and I, you know, my synagogue was there in droves. Every, everyone's synagogue right, my was My family there. was there. Every organization. It was dispiriting, it was deflating, and it was hard not to see something in that. And I'm not saying there was no coverage, but it was very little, and particularly compared to how they've covered some of these, uh, of these protests. Without, again, being alarmist about that, what, what do you think, what was your reaction to seeing that? Is that just kind of like a ho-hum, we knew this is how the media is going to respond to the most historic, I think, ever, in terms of the numbers, um, showing of Jewish solidarity uh, in American history? Well. I, it, it is the largest because um, I was involved with what had been the largest, which was the 1987 rally for Soviet Jewry on the eve of President Gorbachev's visit to Washington. Um, it, it was an amazing event, by the way. I mean, we had 36 days to organize our demonstration, and we thought that that was a flash in the pan. And this was like five days, six days. Whatever. For um, November 13th. Uh, and and the number of challenges to overcome were just breathtaking. So it was an amazing uh, event. And I think, Abby, with all of the challenges you mentioned, I think the most important um, takeaway were the people who were there felt empowered. Uh, again, remember what I said a few moments ago about the, the Jewish students. They felt very much alone on campuses. Mm. We all came out within, within a week from all over the country. Um, we, we, we represented the, the spectrum of Jews from fiercely atheist, agnostic, to reform, to, to, to orthodox, to ultra-orthodox. Um, we were left-wing, we were centrist, we were right-wing. It didn't matter. We were a mass of people um, proud to be Jewish and unafraid to say it to the nation. And I think, Abby, that while the New York Times and Wall Street Journal both had, had pictures of the rally the next day, it quickly faded, it's true. But you know, Jewish marches don't come with masks, and they don't come with genocidal calls from the stage, and they don't come with desecration of the American flag, and they don't come with an attempted assault on the White House, and they don't come with mob scenes on the streets. Um, we play by American rules. And again, I come back to the same thing. We thought by playing by the rules, that's what you do in America. You play by the rules. Um, but politicians heard the message. And if you follow the stage, um, you had all the faces of America on the stage. So I, I, I wouldn't become too dispirited. To the contrary, I'm uplifted by the rally. It was a huge success. It was. Thank you, David Harris. Um, so good to be with you all during this very difficult time. This is Defending Israel with David Harris. I'm Abigail Pogrebin, wishing you a good Thanksgiving.